My name is Andy. I help people and organizations connect a purpose and make a difference in the world. In these wild and uncertain times, this podcast is an invitation towards better futures, exploring the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible people, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to The Wonder Dog. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high-star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a member of my small but mighty community of monthly supporters. You'll help me keep the lights on and provide funding to a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at thewonderdomepodcast.com. My guest today is the multi-award winning speculative fiction author, Ken Liu. This is Ken's third time on the Wonder Dome. I love spending time with Ken. He is such a deep and generous thinker. He has written so many stories that have moved me to tears, that have widened and deepened my sense of self and my place in the world and my humanity and the humanity of everyone around me. And um, he has also contributed to stories, even if you've never read any of his works, it's likely that you've, without knowing it, seen stuff uh, on television, on Netflix, on AMC. His uh, writing has reached a place of tremendous influence in the zeitgeist when we think about questions of humanity and identity and artificial intelligence and creativity and innovation and the future. Today in our conversation, Ken and I explore two recent pieces of work. One is his beautiful aching short story called The Passing of the Dragon, which you can find on tour.com. We'll, we'll link to it below. And it's a, a story of a young woman named Kay who feels deeply disconnected from her own creative muse and tries to find a way to rekindle that connection. And it's a sad story, it's bittersweet, and also offers a kind of hope for those of us who are trying to be creative and authentic in a world, a profoundly noisy world where everyone has a hot take and a judgment and a point of view and is happy to, to kind of dump on somebody else and make fun of them and, and diminish their creative calling and their creative gift. So The Passing of the Dragon is a story about this painter Kay who goes on a journey of reconnection to her creativity. And the other piece of work that we explore is Ken's recent translation of the Tao Te Ching by Latse. Uh, the Tao is one of the the most ancient sort of spiritual philosophical texts. Um, it comes came out of China around 400 BC. So this is 400 years before um, Jesus Christ and Christianity came on the scene. And it is been translated and uh, interpreted by many writers and thinkers over the years. But often 
they are Western writers and thinkers who are working from already translated versions. So they're kind of taking English translations and interpreting them. And Ken made a commitment to go back to the original Chinese and do his own fresh translation for this transformative time that we're living in. It is uh, really beautiful and moving. And what I love about my experience with with this the Taoist philosophy is how playful and provocative it is, how much it both invites us into the beauty of language and also says language is not the thing. First, your experience is the thing. And language and perhaps all art are ways of expressing your experience, but they are themselves something that has to come from this direct first person. So it's this kind of paradox that we need language to communicate to each other, to point in the direction of possibility, but we can't actually show reality with language or art. We can only gift a perspective or a possibility. And so what does it mean for each of us to claim responsibility for our own experience and our own understanding of reality? How do we each of us make a home in this world of ours, particularly as so much is breaking down culturally, economically, politically? So this is a, this is a juicy one. This is a really juicy conversation with Ken. And if you haven't read any of his work, please do yourself a favor and go check out his the Dandelion Dynasty, which is, I think, uh, just on, on par with Game of Thrones, if not better in terms of its scope and its impact and its creativity, and also his just dozens and dozens of heartbreaking, beautiful, insightful short stories, including The Passing of the Dragon, which we'll link to, and uh, the audible audio version of the Dao De Jing is is available and forthcoming as a printed version this summer of his translation of the Tao. All right. I've said too much. <laughs> Here I am saying how language isn't isn't uh, accessible to reality and I'm jabbing on here. Hopefully so. Let's get settled in. Ah <sighs> and hear what Ken has for us. Ken Lu, welcome back. Thank you for having me. It's great yeah. to be back in the Wonder Dome. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, I feel really happy to have you back. And you are, uh, you, you have the singular sort of honor of being a third time returner. I haven't had anyone else on the, Is on that the right? Wonder Dome for three times. Yeah. So I well, feel really, really I am honored. I am honored. Thank you. Yeah. You know what I, there's something I love about this vehicle for connection. Um, I, I probably mentioned this in the first time we spoke, but the, the first time I saw you in person in three dimensions was at a writer's conference in New Bedford where you were the keynote speaker. And I remember and that. it was just such a um, generous talk about focusing on what you can control and and relinquishing too much worry about what's beyond your control. And as we were talking before the call today, I got in touch, I sort of got re-in touch with that wisdom as as we talked about productivity and pro, you know, being prolific and what it means to like be a professional creator of any stripe. 
And for me, with the, this one, with the Wonder Dome, the past few months have been really disruptive. And a part of me was just kind of fatigued by the effort and feeling like, uh, what's like to what end? What like well, making all these episodes, but for what and for who? And I sort of lost the thread of it. And uh, I've slowly been finding my way back into it. And and what I what's what's really I'm re-remembering is that I'm doing this because I get to talk to, to to people because I get to connect as much as any of us can connect. And I feel like a lot of your writing explores these connections and the way they can be broken and the way they can be made through intimacy, through art, through story. So it just feels really good to be back with you again. Oh, thank you. I mean, what you said reminds me of this essential paradox of the way we live our lives. It, it feels like sometimes we set up systems and institutions to deliberately take joy away from the things mm -hmm. that we enjoy doing. Right. I mean, the pattern you're describing happens to everyone, right? You might start out as a very passionate uh, original thinker until you're given a newspaper column to write. And now all of a sudden you're put on a schedule and you have to come up with something every week. We all know very famous, prominent creative thinkers who got on that track mm. and were told, you know, they're supposed to write a newspaper column. And, um, and you know, you can see the joy leaking out of it and what they produce becomes worse and worse over the years as the very joy of creating, thinking, exploring, deeply engaging with ideas is replaced with this desire to simply produce words to meet a schedule. Mm -hmm. um, we see people who do things like talk shows. Uh, you know, they're wonderful interviewers. They love talking. They love crafting this kind of ephemeral interactive story and then suddenly they do it every night and then it becomes not fun anymore it becomes mm -hmm. a, a thing other than what it was you have writers who love telling stories until they get a deal to produce uh, a particular series at a particular clip um mm -hmm. either mm -hmm. because you know that's what the algorithm requires or because <laughs> the publisher puts them on that schedule and it becomes completely joyless so why do we do that? I mean, why is it that we constantly set up our own institutions to to destroy the very thing that made oh. us happy in the first place? Mm. Mm. What's your sense? I mean, for me, one big answer comes in is commerce, right? Like we commodify Definitely. something. But there's some there's something subtle over there. There's too, more. Maybe. Yeah, there's, there's more. There. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oftentimes we say money is the root of our evil, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but it's not quite right either. There's something more going on. I feel like we, as a society, have corrupted the meaning of what work is. Um, you know, I, I feel like originally work is synonymous with play. It's it's mm. things you do to derive purpose, meaning to satisfy your curiosity. Um, you know, we we did things, we crafted things, if you will, in order to because it's a form of play. You know, mm. it's a, it's a form mm. of exercising our imagination of of simply trying to exist in the universe between heaven and earth, um, and and play is our natural state. Um, and when play results in something that other people also enjoy, we sometimes call that work. Um, and we say we produce value, uh, but that's not really 
right. It's 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 the fact that we produce joy, that we both create joy for ourselves in the process and create joy for others who contemplate the results of our play. I think that's what that was about. Um, but we've moved away from that. Now work is measured in terms of, you know, economic value. Is it yeah. actually worth something? And I think there's some of that, but it's not, that's not the only part of it. Work is also a way for us to assert status, to, to, to mm. feel like mm. we matter. Right. Mm. So mm -hmm. I think there's a reason why when we go to writers conferences, uh, a very popular topic is word count. You know, how many words do you produce? Every day? How many words have you produced? And sometimes, you know, we celebrate or congratulate someone for having written a lot of words, and then we commiserate with those who haven't. Why? Why? Why is that even a thing that we care about? Um, the idea of measuring your your uh, productivity by number of words written or caring about productivity at all is bizarre, right? It's very strange that we, mm. we feel like that's mm. somehow an indication of us being serious thinkers and writers that we actually produce words. Mm. Um, maybe it's because, you know, the work of uh, being a creative person or the work of being a thinker is not really tangible other than this one thing you can measure, which is the number of words you have set down. And so we focus on that. But that's so strange. It, it yeah. almost seems very, um, it, it's like any other kind of measure of that sort, you know, measuring the number of paintings an artist produces or measuring the number of lines of code that a programmer has produced. These are all very <laughs> strange measures that don't really mean anything. Yeah. Yeah. Really appreciating your insight about status. Why am I appreciating that? Like, there's something which which show to me at least shows up often in your writing, particularly in your short stories about the sort of way in which modern life has either intentionally or or not so consciously robbed us of our place in the universe, of our sense of home, of our sense of um, belonging. And uh, and the substitution for that is status to sort of say, well, if I'm a I'll be I'll be important when dot 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 I publish my first book, I get a three book deal, I get my first New York Times review, I get like whatever the and this comes back again to your talk in a way. It's like the seduction of that. And the way that that can drive us almost I can almost as I say that I can kind of feel like a chariot at my heels kind of like driving me like get that get that get that is exhausting it's really exhausting. it is it is you're, you're right Andy I, I feel like I mean this is um you know very natural for me to think about this so um I just uh got out uh this audiobook um my uh, a new translation I've done of uh, Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching, which is a seminal text for Taoism. Uh, and I've done a new translation of it along with a bunch of my thoughts um, uh, in the process of translating it. And, you know, one of the things that Taoism really focuses on is this idea that a lot of our unhappiness comes from becoming dependent on the opinions of other people. Right. Mm, uh, mm. That's that's what I think a lot of a lot of what we're talking about here is um, is is tending towards. 
So the reason why we've replaced our sense of belonging with this status is because modern life, modernity is full of anxieties. It's 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 full of uncertainties. It's a, the work we do is symbolic. We don't produce anything physical. There's very few things we can point to tangible mm, to mm. mark our accomplishments. Mm. Um, whether we are in fact important to people seems opaque we we crave status we're not mm. in small tribes anymore so mm. we have to sort of measure our own place in other people's lives via proxies and so i think we end up creating for ourselves a situation where we crave the favor of others and we fear judgment by others um you know there's this obsession throughout our lives with craving the approval of other people um I, I see this in even children, you know, if they are on social media, they want to see the number of likes on their pictures, they want to see the number of comments, they want to see number of subscribers. And we are taught constantly that that's how you understand and see your own value to society. Are there a lot of people who like your stuff? Are there a lot of tangible markers of, of your influence? Um, so, and, and we do this in subtle and unsubtle ways, right? When we introduce an author, right, we explain that the author is important because they're a bestseller. Mm. Why, why is that <laughs> interesting? The fact that they <laughs> sold a lot of books somehow makes them important. Uh, I mean, you know, you know, the best-selling authors in our universe are not, in fact, necessarily the deepest thinker or the most interesting thinkers. I mean, um, just go look at the best-selling books, um, you know, that are record holders right now, and tell me if you think that these are these are worthwhile because the authors are incredibly good thinkers and the ideas are good and the books are actually fundamentally good, or maybe something else is happening. Um, but the fact that we measure people's success by the number of books they've sold, or by the number of awards they've won, or by some other measure that indicates other people have good opinions of them. It's very strange. I mean, yeah. in the Tao, De Jing Lao Tzu says, you should be as terrified of other people's favor as of their contempt. Ooh. Because in both cases, you are putting their power. When they favor you, you fear losing their favor. Mm. And when they mm. despise you, you crave their approval. In mm. both cases, you now are in other people's power. But if you you know, if you don't have their favor and you don't have their contempt, then it doesn't matter. You can get to actually live your life. Yeah. There's a couple things that come up for me. Let me see which one I want to. One of the subtle tragedies in there as well is the, 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 the simple kind of bracing, sobering truth that not only does achieving that status not really produce any durable sense of happiness or worth, at least not in my experience and not in my inquiries with others, but it, it creates, it makes it even harder to bridge that ineffable gap between you and another person, because now you're in this room and some people there are desperate for you to notice them because you have some kind of a, a elusive symbolic status. And, yep. and other people are jealous and envious of you because you have some kind of, and so you like all of these projections kind of start to come on you that are even less who you are. So the sort of status actually 
widens the belonging gap as opposed to shrinking it, even though it's sort of this this social proxy for it. And that's just yeah. it's kind of sad. It <laughs> is. In touch with. It, it, it's sort of like how a lot of um, words have become corrupted in this modern age. You know, the idea of friendship has been corrupted. Like, what is a friend? Um, you know, Facebook friends, that's a kind of friend. <laughs> and a Twitter follower, that's a kind of friend, but a different kind of friend. Like, the very way these words have become corrupted into something that's um, that's measurable, that is a yeah. status symbol, that is deeply troubling. Mm. Mm. The other thing that bubbled up for me, um, I haven't yet had a chance to listen to the to the audiobook of your translation of the Tao, um, mm-hmm. but I've read a few interpolations. That my favorite one so far was Ursula Le Guin's. Um, yeah, uh, and I might be, help me really make sure I'm understanding this distinction. But for you to do the translation, you went to the source text or the source texts in. Chinese and worked with them to bring them into English, whereas someone like Ursula Le Guin, who doesn't speak Chinese, is going to other translations in English and kind of reinterpreting them in her own sort of uh, essence. Um, yeah, I, I wish we had different words for the 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 things that we do to texts, because... Um, it would just provide us with a better vocabulary for conveying the richness of of the range of things that can happen here. Um, you know, this is something that I think a lot of people don't actually necessarily know or understand. Uh, but there are lots of different types of things that can be called translations, and not all of them follow the same sort of model. There are translations that are done from the original language. There are translations that are done from um, intermediate languages, and that's fairly common. There are also translations done based on other interpretations rather than the original text. And they're all called translations, and I think Mm. that's not quite helpful because these are all different things. They, they, They they do different things. They are all fundamentally, in some sense, engagements with the source text Mm -hmm. um and yet Mm -hmm. they're not the same thing um what i think is particularly interesting in the case of the Tao Te Ching also is that this is a text where the author is very explicit about his skepticism of language in the first place yes so it's it's one of those things where um the more we obsess over text the more we seem to be actually straying from what Lao Tzu intended, uh, which I think is very interesting and, and quite comical. Um, <laughs> you know, for 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 folks who are who study um, classical texts, we have a tradition of obsessing over the textual authority, right? So you know, people who study Shakespeare argue endlessly over whether a word is meant to be wise or wife. Um, so if you know, in Renaissance printing, those two letters can look very yeah. similar. And yeah. so people argue over that sort of thing. And people argue over which edition of the play is authoritative. This all goes back to the idea that the author has a particular a particular work, a, a one and only embodiment of the work in some text that is definitive. 
Um, but if you're actually an author, you know that's actually not true at all. Uh, I mean, you talk about Le Guin. Um, Le Guin herself is a great example. You know, she wrote a lot of essays and a lot of criticism, and she published them in various editions, and she revised them over time. And so if you read them over the years, she revises them, and she adds footnotes, and she says, well, if I were to say this now, I wouldn't say it that way. So Mm. What version mm. is authoritative? Mm. The version written by Le Guin when she was 25 or the one that was written by her when she was 65? I mean, why do you prioritize one over the other? Or maybe mm. neither of them really indicates her authoritative version. Or take somebody like Tolkien, who, um, you know, absolutely hated the fact that the copy editor changed a bunch of spellings for <laughs> his manuscript before publication. And he couldn't even get that fixed until years and years later. So the idea that, you know, there's an authoritative text and we need to adhere to the text and go back to the text, there's something very troubling about that. It's it's this weird obsession over the text when even the author may not necessarily have been able mm. to embody mm. their ideal mm. vision in the text. And I can mm. tell you, you know, myself as a as an author, the published books almost always have stuff in there that I don't actually want and stuff in there that I, um, and stuff I do want that didn't go in there. And I changed my mind about the text constantly um, over time. Uh, and that's healthy. That's the way it ought to be. I don't think a work is fixed. I think it's healthy to be skeptical of language. But anyway, to go back to um, uh, the, the Dao De Jing itself, it's interesting for me to go engage with the text because one of the first questions is, what version of the text, right? There are many, yeah. many different versions yeah. that they've changed over time. And a lot of uh, translations of Dao De Jing will go in there and talk about how authoritative the version of the text they relied on is. And mm. generally that just means earlier. Um, and and they talk about how, you know, maybe other scribes made changes later on as though somehow that made it not authoritative. But, you know, my point here all along is, the very notion of authoritative is very unstable until you actually have the author in front of you and you get to ask them questions. Um, you, you're not going to be able to know what is authoritative. And even then, it depends mm -hmm. on who is the author you're talking to, the 25-year-old author versus the 65-year-old author, the author after you know she's had a full meal versus the author when she is very hungry and irritated. These are all authors. <laughs> and they, they're going to have different answers, and that's entirely okay. Um, mm -hmm. it's, that's, that's the complexity mm -hmm. of it. Um, so instead of obsessing over the authoritative text or, you know, whatever that means, I'm much more interested in understanding what made Laozi's book interesting to people for thousands of years. What do people get out of it and how can it be helpful to us, um, in the modern era, in the time of change and uncertainty and so much confusion um that's what i was interested in uh and and you know and and i wanted to sort of make the translation itself a record of my own journey of struggling with the text and mm -hmm. until i mm -hmm. realized that mm -hmm. the text is not the thing that matters mm -hmm. yeah there's something wonderfully i mean the, at least in the readings i've done of it the whole the sort of feeling tone of so much of the work is this kind of quality of um, paradox, this quality of like, if you take any of this too seriously, you're missing the point. 
But also, if you don't take this seriously, you're missing the point. Exactly. This sort of just, and so, so even in your kind of, as you laid out this way of relating to the text, you've, you're pointing to that paradox. Here, here are some things I've written down. Um, I'll be dead soon. This form I'm in will, will fade. This will inevitably be corrupted and changed and, and mutated over time as other people read it and try and make sense of it. Um, have fun, <laughs> you know, like exactly. there's sort, of, there's sort right. of something really playful in the like simple act of like, I know this is inadequate and I'm still going to write it down and, and throw it out into, into the space where other minds and souls and hearts can engage with it. A hundred percent. The texts both matter and don't matter. Right. I mean, um, Zhuangzi, another Taoist had a parable about this, you know, he, he, he said he had this simple wheel, right? Somebody who makes wheels, uh, converse with the grand prince, uh, and the prince is reading, you know, uh, a, a book of wisdom, of ancient wisdom, um, and he's exclaiming and having a great time reading reading the book. And the wheelwright, you know, asks, "Are the sages who wrote those words still alive?" Uh, and the prince says, "No, they they died long ago. That's why I'm reading their ancient wisdom." And the wheelwright says, "Well, then." you have nothing but you know droppings and 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 cast off scales like that's not wisdom and the prince gets very angry and says how dare you say such things and 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 the wheelwright says you know look i'm just a simple wheelwright and i don't know anything about grand wisdom i just know how to make a wheel now if you ask me to teach my son how to make a wheel and i i can give them all kinds of lessons and i can use words to describe what i do it's not going to do him any good because the only way you know how to make a wheel is to actually make a wheel. I mean, mm -hmm. it's sort of like mm -hmm. swimming, right? You can mm -hmm. read about swimming all you want, but until you actually go swimming, you're not going to know how to swim. So there's lots of wisdom that's just not reducible to words. It's like you try to go see a dragon in the woods. And if you don't see the dragon and all you see are footprints left by the dragon and some cast off scales, then you haven't actually seen the dragon, right? So that's what you're reading. The The words are basically yeah. hollow yes. husks left behind. The actual wisdom <laughs> is gone with the sage. So all you have are words. I mean, this sort of radical distrust of language, this radical um, uh, skepticism about the power of language to capture wisdom is very powerful. You know, it's very interesting. And it's the more I think about it, the more it feels true. That, in mm -hmm. fact, the most powerful, important things are not reducible to words. And our obsession with words is a huge part of our problem and our unhappiness. Mm -hmm. The fact that mm -hmm. we think words mean everything. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, right, words are not nothing. I mean, having the footprints and the scales do tell you something about the dragon, yeah. even if they yeah. are not the same thing as the dragon. So it's not entirely right to say the words don't matter. But it's also not right to say that words are all that matters. It's like you say, a paradox. You can't ignore the words, but you also can't only pay attention to the words. Mm. Mm. I love that the, the fable earlier, as you were talking, there was this image I had in my head. And and now in this moment, it's kind of crystallizing in Jeff Vandermeer's book, um, Annihilation. There's this sort of 
he describes this kind of fungus that grows on this wall and the fungus forms these, this, these words and the kind of protagonist of the book follows the words down this kind of tunnel and at some point realizes that she's not just reading words, she's actually breathing in the spores of these words because they are, you know, it's a pretty hallucinatory novel, but, you know, there's something about like, the words are kind of excretions of the mind. They are, they are something. And uh, I've taken so much solace and joy and like the prince laughing at the wisdom, like that's something. And the wheelwright is also right. It's not, it's not the thing. It's, it's a, it's a new happening. It's a new moment. And right. if you confuse the two, then, then we're just kind of like putting the dragon scales on our body and going, look, I'm a dragon. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. That is a very beautiful <laughs> image. I love that. Yeah. And, you know, this connects you. You've written this gorgeous kind of gently hopeful, but also heartbreaking story called The Passing of the Dragon, um, which is maybe why you evoked that particular metaphor about yeah. a young painter who goes to visit to, to on a kind of personal pilgrimage to the home of the poet Chilton to it's just like, I love this poet. He was so successful and famous and everyone knows about his poems and all the stuff we've been talking about. And I've just like painted like my 50 people have seen my paintings. And then she has this kind of vision of a dragon and tries to paint it again and again and again unsuccessfully. And yeah, I, I wonder if you could speak more. I'll make sure to link the the whole story in, in the show Thank notes because it's worth reading. But there's something about both the incredible beauty and fire she gets when she has a first-person experience and yeah. the way that her art is more beautiful because of that first-person experience and the way that her art like frustratingly keeps not like other people just don't see it no matter how much she she gets to the canvas and and transmits yeah. this beauty i mean you know the the dragon metaphor as a metaphor for art is something that i've been working with for a long time even prior to my engagement with the Tao Te Ching. it's something that i've thought about uh for a very long time so you know here's what I think art is about, right? There's an essential paradox, since we're talking about paradoxes, um, at the heart of art, uh, which is, is art communicative or not, right? There's something essentially um, weird about art. Um, so the prototype for a communicative act would be something like giving directions to someone, right? You know you've succeeded if the other person successfully follows your directions and get to where you are. That yeah. is a successful communicative act. If right. they fail to do it, then you have failed to in conveying your message. Mm. Mm. But art is not like that at all. Uh, it's just not. Um, art, to me, is much more like the situation where you're a kid playing the woods and you suddenly see a dragon passing over you. And you come home and you try to paint a picture of the dragon to show other people or you try to tell other people about the dragon. Um, and you're not going to be able to do it because the dragon, by definition, is not capturable. You cannot capture it. And so you can do all you want and other people will look at what you've done and imagine their own dragon. And it's not going to be like the dragon that you imagined. So what have you done? Were you trying to communicate and you failed because they couldn't see the dragon that you saw? 
Or did you succeed? Because they got to see something else, something mm. that's like a dragon mm. and not mm. quite like a dragon. So another different metaphor that I use to, to explain art is that the very point of art is to misunderstand the artist. Um, and, and I say that, and, and it's, it's very, it's very confusing for people sometimes, but I, but I think it's important. It's worth teasing it out. Um, when you read a work of art, say the Iliad or something like that, what is the message of the Iliad? And there's no answer to that. Um, some people will read the Iliad and, and interpret it as an anti-war poem because it really can be read that way. It's very much a poem about the horrors of war and how war is actually just a terrible thing that makes no sense. But you can also go anthropological and go in there and say that, well, you know, if you understand the ethos and the world of the classical Greeks um, and the pre-classical Greeks, then this poem is not anti-war at all. This poem is very much, you know, very much captures that kind of ethos. Of, of violence, of, mm. of, of defining your status via violence, of the mm. need to carry out your duty. Um, and Achilles is not, in fact, uh, a, 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 um, a person who suffers from some, some sort of illness. Achilles actually is the ideal masculine mm. figure mm. of the era. Or you can read it entirely the other way. And and you can argue over which interpretation is correct. The very fact that people can argue over this would, in some sense, be suggestive that the artist Homer failed to communicate a message correctly. Um, so art has failed to communicate. But on the other hand, you could argue that its power precisely comes from the fact that we can interpret it regardless of the poet's intentions. Mm. That our mm. ability to discern a meaningful aesthetic experience out of it, independent of the poet's original intent, whatever that may be, is what makes it great art. So in some sense, the fact that art can be misunderstood is what makes it great art. If art is incapable of being misunderstood and can only be interpreted one way, then mm. it becomes propaganda. Mm -hmm. It becomes mm -hmm. no better than driving directions, mm. which is not mm. art. Yeah. Um, so that is the paradox of art. Is art communicative or not? And my story, The Passing of the Dragon, is about that essential process because trying to be an artist, to share your vision, is an act of incredible vulnerability. You're opening yourself up to being misunderstood. And in fact, for art to go viral, to use modern parlance, requires it to be misunderstood. Things that go viral inevitably are misunderstood. And are you okay mm. with that? Are mm. you okay with having mm. your work becoming the part, becoming the stories of other people? Are you okay with your art being misunderstood and misinterpreted by other people? And, you know, my story is hopeful in that I also offer a third way out, which is, you know, between being completely misunderstood and popular and being understood by absolutely no one, there perhaps is a third way, which is at least some readers will try the hardest to see the dragon that you saw. They may not actually see it, but they will try. And in that effort of trying is perhaps all the grace that we can ask for uh. um, to have those readers and to have those writers.
to mm. try to tell the story you want to tell and to have a sympathetic soul who's willing to at least try to see the dragon that you saw. Mm. Mm. That just really touched me again, yeah. In a way, I feel like you've just named, and perhaps it's Taoist, but you can tell, maybe you can comment on that, but you've just named like an approach to living period that uh, is so vanishingly rare in a society that prioritizes word counts and productivity and status, like to have those moments where whether it's about art or just two people, right, to perhaps are talking across purposes or across differences or across cultures or whatever it might be, whatever the, the dividing line might be, however real or imagined that line is, to show up in good faith and say, there's something here that if I listen closely enough, there's something to, to, to uncover or to feel or to hear that if yeah. I'm not, if I'm not listening closely enough, I'll miss it. Like that kind of active engagement with another mind, another uh, soul is uncomfortable for some people, but like another consciousness is uh, yeah. so, so rare period. And I just really like would love like that. The invitation you just gave, what if we just all did that with each other more? <laughs> it's it's that's exactly it right i mean i feel like so much of our unhappiness um you know we we talk about the modern epidemic of loneliness of the sense of having a lot of shallow connections and no deep connections i feel a lot of that has to do with this desire um to really connect that we don't cultivate and give ourselves opportunities to do um so the the issue here is you know, we we all we've all had those moments where we the way we describe it is we feel seen. What does that mean? And it mm. doesn't mean that you're on the stage and people are adoring you. It doesn't mean that you're passing by and somebody saw you. That's not what it means to be seen. What it means is you are understood in the way that you wish to be understood. You are mm. seen in the mm. way you mm. wish to be seen. Mm. Um, your story, the story that you tell about who you are is actually understood and accepted and believed in. Yeah. And, That's and, what it is. And maybe even you didn't know that that was the story of you until someone saw it in you until you, yes. Oh, like this moment where like, I feel seen and it's like, Oh my God, I feel, I didn't even know that about myself. There's something discovered or uncovered or made more clear that's hard to do by yourself. Yeah, absolutely. In um, when I wrote the Dendron Dynasty, one of the uh, fantasy idioms that I have in that book is in the world of Dara, people describe their best friends, their soulmates, as the mirror of my soul. That's what uh, it means. Yeah. Somebody who allows you to yeah. see who you are, someone who can reflect back to you who you wish to be. What in your deepest um your nature that that is reflected in them that that is what this kind of connection that mm -hmm. we crave yeah and and that's that's the rare magic for me in written word in the written word is that so certainly it's pleasurable. A well-written story or essay for me provides a certain pleasure. 
But there are those moments where I read something and upon reading it or uh, during reading it or upon finishing the reading of it, uh, there's something alive in me that I, I hadn't, it's that, that paradox of like, that's me in there that I didn't even see. The book becomes mm -hmm. a kind of mirror. The, these little yes. secretions of ink and, you know, blank canvas become somehow something that can evoke a true sentiment or a true moment well, in our that that's why art is not a communicative act per se because a communicate communicative act implies that there's a message from the source that goes to the target and it has to be perfectly received otherwise it's fail it's a it's a it's a failure but that's not how art works as you're describing here art requires an active creation engagement from the audience the viewer or the reader has to actively do the work of incorporating the art into their own selves. And it's it's the transformation within the self that yields the aesthetic experience. Mm. And so, mm. you know, by definition, every viewer will be viewing a different painting and every reader will be reading a different book because the book does not, the, the book itself is just the scales and the, the footprints left behind. But you have to do the work of imagining the dragon based on that. And the dragon you evoke will be a different dragon than the one that yeah. the author saw. Yeah. But if it's a powerful dragon, it will move you. Yeah. Um, and but but at least half of that, if not more, comes from you. And that's what art is about. It's it's mm -hmm. about evoking this part of you into play. Yeah, the dragon in you comes to life, comes out of mm -hmm. slumber, or comes into being. I mean, yeah. I'm thinking of Le Guin again uh, because she was so into dragons. But I think she said something like, you know, people who deny the existence of dragons are often eaten by dragons. Exactly right. She 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 wrote an essay called Why Are Americans Afraid of Dragons, which is, you know, essentially about this. And, and she has this very lovely, um, you know, image, this sort of sentiment about what the value of fantasy really is. You know, she says artists are not they're not cameras. They don't capture reality. That's not really what they care about at all. Um, reality just means facts in, in the sense. That's, that's not what artists care about. Artists care about the truth. And the truth is not found out there, but in here. And by in here, she means the collective unconscious that we all share. Artists are supposed to go into the collective unconscious and find mythologies to bring them out in the realm of shadow, of 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 shared suffering of shared delight of dragons if you will yeah. that's where the truth lies and artists bring that out um and that's what we care about yeah mm. so as 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 i speak to the ken in this moment the ken who's drinking tea and kind of riffing with me on on story and meaning and truth what's what's your relationship to your creative work at this moment i know that like i have a sense that that through the lens of productivity and commerce it's been fraught and maybe it always has been fraught but but just through the lens of like meaning and discovery the kind of place that we're playing in right now like how is the artist yeah that's a really interesting question um i i, I go back to this idea that art or really anything worth doing is about play that fundamentally it's it's being 
it's play that we are meant to do as humans. Um, you know, by play, I, I mean full engagement and full engagement with and honoring our own curiosity and mm. trying to follow through mm. to discover who we are. Um, I, I feel like that's our task on, on this earth, that we are here to play, to discover through the exercise of our curiosity and the development of our faculties in play, who we are and what our story is. Um, and, and we tell that story. Um, and artists are people who have chosen play to create works of aesthetic uh, engagement. The result of our play are things that other people get to contemplate and play with um, and to craft their own aesthetic experiences to help them tell their own stories. That's what we do. Yeah. Um, and, and, and if I create one that does that for a lot of people, I'm happy. Um, if I can't do that right now for some reason, because it's not the right time and that's okay too. Um, you know, there are other things for me to do. We don't have to be always doing one thing. Yeah. Yeah. This, I, this sort of like identity calcification of like, oh, Ken's a writer and that inner Ken in you that's going like, oh, I'm a writer. I have to be writing. I'm a and that's that, that like that that fatigue again it sort of saps the joy that we were talking about I yeah think... exactly we we're so obsessed with the idea that you know you are what you do that we sort of um we misunderstood what that really means you know you are what you do i think it, it means that you need to express your actual values by living them i think that's what that really means mm. but we've sort of corrupted into if you're a writer, you must actually be constantly producing. Otherwise, you're just a faker, um, which is weird. <laughs> it's so weird <laughs> and so like punishing to the soul. I'm thinking, I think it was Alan Watts, who's, who's you know, kind of a complicated figure, but an, was an incredibly charismatic kind of um, sort of thinker, a Buddhist, uh, sort of Western Buddhist thinker who would give these long storytelling talks and very... You know, kind of, you could kind of, there's something about the way that he spoke that had a certain psychoactive effect on a lot of people. And, but he, but he taught, I'm pretty sure it was him, or it might have been Terrence McKenna. One of them was sort of talking about how they were at a, at a restaurant one time, and they had this realization that everyone there was playing a game. Like the waiter who was moving, you know, all like balancing and picking and, you know, artfully showing up just so to not be too intrusive, but, you know, and, and we could channel a lot of that. There are other lenses to interpret that, that are maybe not so um, uh, welcoming, but this, just this lens of like, here's a group of people who've all showed up to a place who are all playing a game. And each of us has our role on the diner and there's the waiter and there's the chef, but all of us have forgotten that it's a game. Like we've, we've fell into this, like, oh, like I'm a waiter. I have to, oh, I've got to get the dishes to these people and they'll be mad at me if they don't. And it's like, you know, this almost certainly a hundred years from now or 200 years from now, like the game will look different. And if we can kind of hold that we're participants and players of the game, well, we also make it that we could actually contribute to the game and say that, what if we play it this way? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I like that a lot. There's something really exciting to me about that that we that we lose sight of if we get so over identified with the role yes. that we're playing. Yeah, we 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 can't be we can't take the roles that we play too seriously. Yeah, but we also can't not take it seriously yeah. at all. There it is again. There's somewhere, right? yeah. Yeah, there's something. It's like when you see an uh, one of my favorite actors is Meryl Streep, mm. and she just has this gift to like be somehow become Margaret Thatcher, let's say, in one movie, and then to become like the sort of like hapless mom and Mamma Mia in another movie, and to like you know, there's something like she's there. Meryl is there in each of these very different roles. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, just, you know, like ruthlessly, you know, economical and and Mamma Mia, the like hapless mom who's ditzy and, you know, like just, and there's Meryl, she's fully in it. And yet she also disappears in a role as well. Like there's Margaret. Wait, there's Meryl, there's Margaret, there's Margaret. And it's just this, this sort of quality of, uh, there's something about theater as this metaphor that I think we're touching into. Like, there, Margaret Thatcher isn't really there, and yet right. somehow Margaret Thatcher's there. So yes. what is that? Yes. You know, and that's like that gift of like, oh, like Ken, the author, isn't really there, but he's right there. Something like that. We could invite ourselves into these roles more fully, even as we see that they're transitory. They're they're not us. They're just something we can act, either consciously or not. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's fascinating. That is really fascinating. So I'm curious as you um with with full full recognition that that we've already laid out that there's no authoritative point of view, but you spent time with a set of texts, the Tao Te Ching, that has persisted, has has captivated many people over many thousands of years. And um I feel like we our conversation has had some of the spirit of that text, although we haven't looked at it too closely. But mm-hmm. you spent quite some a substantial time with it. And I wonder, as we talk about truth and meaning and role-playing and storytelling and communication, what's your sense of, of you know, if, if the author of, of the Tao was somehow sitting with us, smiling and laughing a bit at us, like, what's your sense of what they would say about about this conversation what would be the doubt you know i i i think laozi would enjoy this conversation i think this is the sort of thing he would have enjoyed participating himself um you know one of the things that i found particularly interesting about engaging with a classical text um like the Tao Te Ching is the fact that there's a um you know as i said i engage with all different versions of the text and sort of some of them are really radically different and really made me rethink about my own relationship to the text. So to give you a very simple example, um, in most versions of the Tao Te Ching, the very first verse um, is called the gate to wonder. And it starts out with a with the line that I think a lot of people have heard. Um, the path that can be walked is not the path that lasts. The name that can be spoken is not the name that endures, right? So a lot of people say that's sort of the if they know nothing else about Taoism, they probably know something about that. The path that can be walked is not the path that lasts. Um, 
Uh, and the thing is, you know, it's very natural to say, well, of course, that's the most important thing. That's why it comes at the beginning of the book. But, you know, when you actually dig into the history of it a little bit, you realize that that's actually not how it was. The earliest versions that have survived do not have that as the first verse. It's actually mm -hmm. somewhere in the middle of the book because <laughs> the the, the Tao Te Ching is divided into the Book of Tao and the Book of Dua, and the Book of Dua comes first um, in these oldest versions. So this would have come in near halfway through the book. Mm -hmm. it, it wouldn't have been the beginning. So it makes you really radically reevaluate all of this. You know, we place a certain amount of importance to the opening lines of something. But what if they weren't the opening lines and they were just other lines taken out to the to the beginning? You know, mm -hmm. it, it makes you wonder what if the Iliad had been rearranged so that the first <laughs> lines are not the first lines? Mm -hmm. What would that mean? How do we interpret things differently? Um, so that's one part of it. And I, I think about how you know, authorial intention is impossible to access at this point. So all we have are the accumulated um, interpretations over the many, many millennia mm -hmm. that the book has survived, mm -hmm. the commentaries and the collective reinterpretations and even the collective rewrites. You know, we, we argue about Shakespeare all the time. There are just some misprints that have become authoritative and we now just accept those are as authoritative in the same way that, you know, the the common English translation of the Bible has this line about as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which turns out to be a mistranslation. And we simply accept that as the authoritative yeah. one because it's so beautiful yeah. in its new form. There's something about old classical texts that undergo this process where the author is not a single person anymore. Collectively, everyone mm -hmm. who reads it and who mm -hmm. writes it and mm -hmm. who comments on it contributes to the book as a whole concept. The book as a whole has been authored by humanity throughout this period. The mm -hmm. original author mm -hmm. was Lao Tzu, perhaps, but it's no longer a singular author. And that yeah. is very radically different from how a lot of us would like to reduce um, books to authority and, and mm -hmm. our conception mm -hmm. of what an author is. Um, and I find that deeply fascinating. Um, and I think Lao Tzu would find the whole thing very fascinating too. He would say that, you know, again, as long as you're not obsessed with the words, but the words do matter and yet they also don't. As long as you understand that the words are just there as footprints left behind by the dragon, then, you know, we're okay because this whole process of trying to understand the dragon trying to be the drag be in the presence of the dragon to 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 realize that we are all trying to feel the dragon in some sense and to to go through existence being able to say i have seen the dragon as long as we all understand that's what's going on here let's let's be playful with the text let's interpret and let's 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 play Mm. Um, I think that's what Lao would say. I, I found it deeply interesting because, you know, anytime you engage with a, class, a classic, you realize how there's just no substitute to engagement with the actual substitute. I mean, this to, to engage with the engagement with the actual text. This is where I say that, you know, the text both doesn't matter, but also does. Yeah. Um, it's There's something really wonderful about actually engaging with the material uh, rather than just interpretations and commentaries on it. Um, it's sort of like, you know, before we read Hamlet, all of us 
know the plot of Hamlet and we basically know <laughs> what it's about, right? None yeah. of us come to Hamlet actually without having all these layers of interpretation already built in. And yet the actual experience of reading Hamlet is different from what you yeah. imagine would be. And that's how, always how it is with classics. They are very deep and they are very rich um, trying to engage with the scales and the footprints of the dragon is still amazing more than merely seeing photographs and reading descriptions of it. Yeah, there's something, um, a kind of playful image to to riff on the, the scales and the footprints is there's, there's both the remnants of wisdom, the kind of cast-offs of wisdom attempted to be captured in the words, but there's also some... Sh sort of shadow or impression or imprint of the person themselves. Like there's some way in which, without overstating it, you being able to go back to the, the original texts draws you in a kind of out of time way closer to Lao Tzu, that, that he comes to life just a little bit more but it, the or maybe the Lao Tzu in you comes to life a little bit more because you're you're that much closer to him than otherwise. Yeah, I think both descriptions are right. There's definitely something about that, and I mean, I do think, I do think. By the way, I mean this is almost a tangent, but I think it is important. I do think that is why I'm not particularly concerned about this whole idea of AI replacing humans as far as writing is concerned. Uh, I, I find a lot of the worry about you know, AI replacing humans very silly, to be honest. Um, mainly because, uh, I mean, this will sound very uncharitable, but the kind of writing that can be replaced by AI, I just don't care about. Um, <laughs> I have no doubt that, um, so let me put it this way. There are some forms of writing where we care that we're encountering something of the writer's soul. Yes, yes. And there are types of writing where we don't. If I'm reading a novel, I do care that I'm encountering the writer's soul. If I'm yeah. reading a poem, I care about that. But if I'm reading advertising copy, <laughs> I don't particularly care. Now, I do think copywriting is going to be under threat from AI. And I, I do feel for the copywriters who are going to lose their livelihoods to this. But fundamentally, I think it's very different to worry about that versus worrying about novelists and poets being replaced by AI. And we sort of confuse the two and we sort of say that they're all the same. They're not. There are some forms of writing where we don't care that mm, it's an encounter, mm -hmm. encounter yeah. with the soul. And the some encounter matters. Do. Yeah, the encounter really matters. I just finished reading um, just last night, uh, Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky. Have you read that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And... Why am I bringing this up right now? It how could I maybe I'll just briefly summarize it. Like it's a it's a it's a sort of deep future story of the end of humanity trying to find a home on a new planet because Earth has been poisoned by, you know, what feels that he doesn't put it in so many words. He's but it sort of feels like an extrapolation of our civilization if we keep going down the path we're going we'll reach a place where for a period of time, our technology will make us 
and maybe we're in that period of time, feel as if we are gods. And then at some point that technology will poison the planet and it won't be inhabitable. So the, the remnants of humanity set out to find a new home and discover another planet that's been terraformed by an earlier kind of human scientist. Uh, but the experiment went awry. The, the virus that they used to kind of help accelerate evolution implanted in spiders instead of in, in primates. And so this beautiful civilization of spiders uh, emerges on this planet. And because of how a spider consciousness is distinct from a primate consciousness, they, they're this culture of kind of connectivity. And without giving, the, like for anyone who wants to read the book, I don't want to give too much away, but there is a beautiful moment near the end of the book where surprisingly, despite what we might expect, uh, the humans and the spiders manage to make contact mm -hmm. in a way that's not violent, in a way that, uh, although there is some violence, it ultimately like leads to peaceable interactions. Mm -hmm. And reading that book, uh, there are multiple times where I like, I would flip to the back and like, look and be like, who is this Adrian Tchaikovsky guy? Like there's something about him in there that I found myself curious about while also being inside this fully realized, you know, this cramped spaceship with the last of humanity and the characters that he evoked and who they were and the spiders and their characters and who they were. And so like both, I feel closer to, to consciousness in general because he does such a beautiful job of bringing it to life inside of uh, a human mind and an AI mind and a spider mind and, you know, all of these things. But also there's something, these ineffable that's what we crave. Yeah, yeah th just, there's something like, about I, if, if some if some sort of generative algorithm had produced that, maybe it would have been entertaining, but it wouldn't have had that same like just the ev evocation of life. Yeah, it it, it, it it will be. That's the thing, right? We there are, I think, for the aesthetic experiences that we care about, we do often crave an actual connection with um, a creator with the soul or the mind or whatever you want to call it we can also have entirely self-generated aesthetic experiences where we contemplate say uh, a piece of driftwood or something and have an aesthetic experience in yeah. that case you know we're not really communing with a soul so much as the spirit of the world as a whole um, and I can imagine AI art being contemplated in a similar manner mm -hmm. but fundamentally mm -hmm. That is a different thing from contemplating, yeah. engaging with a human creative work. And that I just don't think is a thing that we particularly, it's not merely whether the AI can fool us into thinking that it's done by a human or not. That's just not really the interesting question at all. I think because so much of our understanding of AI has been shaped by the idea of the Turing test and the imitation game, that we sort of fall into the trap that the imitation is the same thing as the, mm -hmm. as the real mm -hmm. thing, that that the point of existence is to be fooled, but that's not it. We that the point of existence is not to be fooled. <laughs> it is not to be given something that we can't tell the difference between that versus the real thing. That's just a very successful piece of fraud. That's not not actually interesting. Um, and in terms of you know this whole AI thing, I, I will also say that if at some point, we get to the point where the AI is a separate consciousness and capable of engaging with the universe and has an, has a 
has become a dragon of its own mm. and capable mm. of leaving mm. behind scales and footprints, I would be 100% interested in engaging with mm. that. I mean, mm. I, I keep on telling people that if someday an aircraft carrier were to write a novel, <laughs> I would be incredibly interested in reading that, so long as the aircraft carrier is not pretending to be human, imitating humans, but trying to tell a story from its own engagement oh, with the universe. <laughs> I would love to read this aircraft mm, carrier mm, author, mm. authored book. It would be amazing. Mm, mm. Assuming I could understand it. I mean, it may be that our experiences are so different that I won't even be able to understand it. But if I could, I think it would be a banger. It would be absolutely yeah. amazing. Oh, I love that, Ken. Yeah, so there's something we're landing here in our, in our last, you know, as we come to a close around the ineffable but really essential engagement between two discrete consciousnesses right like we're playing with it here despite the medium of you know we're not in the same room but we're trying to fact sort of the a facsimile of it we play with it when we read a, a poem or a text or or a novel and and we might discover ourselves playing it as other as more than human or other than human consciousnesses become available to our awareness. I mean, we don't have time to go into it too much, but there's a, a lot of, of research emerging that the that consciousness is like the ground and we could, what is the consciousness of a tree or a bat? Or, right. you know, like we could right. start right. to make ourselves available to intelligences that uh, could produce these kind of, connections that we sometimes when we're lucky feel with our fellow humans human beings yeah yeah if technology can get to the point where it allows us to understand and access these consciousnesses that we're unable to do so now that would be amazing now there's some reason to be skeptical of that simply because you know there there are a lot of there are some there's some evidence and some theories that posit that in order for two consciousnesses to be able to understand each other, they have to share some evolutionary history. That mm, is, mm. you know, if if we share no evolutionary history or if we're so distant from each other down evolutionary history, it's very, it's almost inconceivable for us to be able to understand one another. So mm, if trees, mm. so like say trees are conscious and the wood wide web is actually a cognitive organ, it may be that they're just so different from us, evolutionarily mm. speaking, that we are incapable of understanding their thoughts. So there's some worry about that. But I'm, I keep on hoping that that's not an absolute thing, that we can, in fact, bridge that sort of thing. So mm. that I'm hoping that if there were such other consciousnesses, as we posit, um, that we can find the technological means to access yeah. them, to be able to understand them and yeah. vice versa. I'm optimistic about that too. And I, I would even go one step further at the risk of kind of dropping into territory that, that skeptics would kind of turn their noses at, but there have been times uh, and, and although maybe some of these times have been with the assist of certain chemical substances, there have also been times where I've just many, many, many times where I've just been in the woods and mm -hmm. some tree just like, I'm speaking poetically here because again, words feel, but some tree like spoke to me, like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like the, it had a presence to me. There was some, some kind of, and maybe, maybe you could say, oh no, that's the equivalent of you having an aesthetic experience with a piece of driftwood. Okay. I'm open to that, but maybe there's also 
some way in which uh, uh, the boundary between my skin and its bark is a lot more porous than it appears. And there's some absolutely transmission I mean, happening. Yeah, you're right, Andy. I mean, we don't even know what a human being is, right? I mean, you know, by by a lot of measures, the vast majority of the cells and the DNA in our bodies are not homo sapiens. Um, yeah. you know, we are yeah. collectives. So what is a human being? I mean, how do we really even know what we are and what our where the boundaries of our own cognition and mind and consciousness are? We don't really know. Uh, so, you know, there's no way to know that, as you point out, this porousness and openness. And yeah. how could it be that, evolutionarily speaking, we are susceptible to having our minds altered by these substances from completely evolutionary unrelated branches? That's strange. And we don't really know what that means, you yeah. know? Yeah. Uh, we're starting to peer through the doorway of a whole nother conversation, and I'm aware we're at time, but... um. I just want to say that I'm so glad you said yes to my third invitation to the Wonder Dome. I hope that uh, we get to do this again. I feel really grateful for the art that you've made and the way it's touched me and, and really grateful for the human that you are in this moment, showing up with me and playing and dancing. And, and uh, it's just really meaningful to me. So thank you, Ken. Thank you very much. It's It's been a real pleasure. I always feel so energized after our conversations yeah. uh, and uh, it's, it's a real, it's a real joy, you know? Yeah. Uh, thank you. Same here. And I, like I said, I'll be sure to include uh, links to the passing of the dragon, the story that we alluded to and to your translation of the, of the Tao Te Ching um, and your website and all that good stuff. So if you're listening in folks, uh, I really hope you go check out Ken's work. It's, it's quite special. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thanks for tuning into the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kaylee Serqua, and post-production by Jim Serqua of Sump Pump Studios. The Wonder Dome is recorded and produced primarily on unceded Nipmuc territory. I honor their ongoing leadership and stewardship of the land. I trace my own ancestral roots to Celtic peoples from Ireland and Scotland, and to Anglo and Germanic tribes across Northwestern Europe. We all come from somewhere, we're all going somewhere. May the wisdom of our ancestors guide us, and may we find our own wisdom along the way. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love on the review boards. If you feel called to support this humble offering while making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You can find out more at my website, thewonderdomepodcast.com. Until then, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever. <laughs>